Hello, and welcome to another episode of Six Before Breakfast, the podcast of the ICD, for those who make a living by being creative and talented, or manage and coach those who do. Visit us online at our LinkedIn group and Facebook page channels. Join our community of interest to see, hear more from like-minded people, and meet some friends you do not know yet. My name is Andrew Armour, and today I'm at the wonderful RSA House in John Adams Street in the heart of London, a place that has seen its fair share of challenges and creatives, rebels and revolutionaries. I'm talking this evening to someone who may not have seen the revolution televised, but he has seen it and made it live. His career has seen him creating events from innovative arts nights to the biggest shows at the biggest festivals, from small gigs to the mighty rum shack at Glastonbury from beatbox battles to urban dialogues. Our guest has created shows from the Royal Albert Hall to the Sage Gateshead, worked too with the British Council overseas, from Sudan to Kazakhstan. And more recently, he is the inspirational manager of the Incubator Programme at the legendary Roundhouse, mentoring and coaching young Londoners to turn their creative passions into plans. He's had a creative and productive life that spans imagination, innovation, arts, education, and inspiration, from commercial entrepreneur to promoter of arts for social change. Good evening, and welcome, Dan Sue. And with that kind of CV, what do you say at parties when people ask what you do? That's a really good question. I struggle with that myself. I guess I would call myself an event producer, slash educator, slash creative director. If I was being verbose about it, I'd say poet and dad as well, and DJ. But uh, at the top of that... It's just making space for people. That's interesting. When you say make space, do you see that in terms of your, as a producer, it's about, it's about helping other people then? 100%. Like everything I do is about helping other people. The poet and DJ thing is my kind of selfish endeavour to kind of exercise my, exercise my creativity. Otherwise I'd go a bit loopy. But everything that I do is about creating physical and particularly mental headspace for people to achieve what they can achieve that's really interesting um uh, we will be hearing your thoughts on managing creative people and creative projects obviously as you say that's your sort of main focus um and we want to look at how we maintain that sense of uncertainty and chaos which seems to be a common thread in the creative industries but before we get into that i just want to go back into your sort of uh history if you like and your story um how did it start from you? How did you get started in this industry? I kind of got involved in the back door, really. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was at university. I was studying, studying management sciences. You know, I come from, uh, my dad's from Hong Kong. He's an actuary, or was an actuary. Uh, my mum's from Singapore. So I was very much kind of hedged down the uh, do business maths kind of route. And when I got to university and did management science, I realised it wasn't for me, basically. Uh, and what happened uh, as a fallout of that was me getting fully entrenched in the music scene. You know, as a second generation immigrant, me being able to express and be my creative self was never really an option. And actually what I found at university was I my my wings were spread and eventually I became a drum and bass MC. I was a garage MC, um, at home doing you know kind of youth club slots and you know radio and a bit of minor stuff but when I got to university I found that there was a place and a way for me to combine my my passion music clubbing with um, my skill set and so basically I became a drum and bass MC by accident Um, that went really well I, I was lucky enough to perform with all of my 
you know, kind of drum-based heroes. And that happened for about five or six years. And then when I left university, I thought that might be what I wanted to do. But actually, it was a lot more difficult than expected. The same people who kind of hold the crown within the drum and bass fraternity are still the same people. So I quickly realised that wasn't much of a career path. So essentially, I came back down to London and started putting on events uh, with a number of different collectives. And long story short, got to about 2009 and I, you know, I would be going to gigs maybe five, six, seven nights a week because that was my passion, live music and spaces, um, that I came to a place where I realised I could do it better. And so I tried. And we put on our first show at Paradise by way of Kensal Green, a small upstairs pub, uh, upstairs room of a pub, kind of. So Paradise was one of the first kind of bougie gastro pubs in London that kind of combined mixed use with like, you know, like live music and a really nice restaurant and so on. So we kind of got in there at the right time. And we were also just about the kind of emergence of social media. And I kind of realized that if I could build a community and put on a show that was hot enough, then we could build word of mouth. And that was literally our kind of strategy from the beginning. Combined with um, a number of really talented artists who ended up uh, working with who ended up becoming some of the biggest pop stars in the world um, and that kind of gave us the trajectory to kind of follow it through so it started as a small charity gig with like 30 people um, and now we're at Glastonbury and working on the roundhouse and doing all kinds of projects and it's it, what's interesting about that whole journey is that what has evolved ostensibly as events a lot of people put on gigs um, but we realised that the same ethos and the same principle in the same community that we were working with um, could be applied to the educational context. So we were working with lots of vulnerable young people, had, you know, kind of partners in crime who were going into youth clubs, going into uh, pupil referral units and doing what we did in a gig, but in a workshop space. And I remember my good friend uh, Nathaniel Natty being like, you'd be a great uh, tutor in a, in a workshop. And I was like, not a chance like I, I don't see myself teaching what what could I say basically all that kind of like first teacher anxieties um and I remember going into my first uh workshop which was in Ashford in Kent um it was a pupil referral unit and the moment I walked in a, a chair just got thrown across the room and I was like okay this is how it is um is this normal day and it's like yeah it's totally normal don't worry everything's under control and everything was under control and I realised that even though that was quite scary as an introduction uh, nothing after that really phases you in the kind of educational context and so we basically kind of diversified our model Lyrics Organics which is the company that I started in 2009 and uh, now our kind of bread and butter is running education programmes around it could be around event management or entrepreneurship could be around social activism or mental health um, but originally it started as music production songwriting poetry and so on so yeah it's been quite a roundabout journey to get to where i am here when you started uh, bearing in mind your your parents obviously very uh, sounds like a very conservative uh, business people how did they view that path that you were taking at the time were they supportive of the work you were doing or was it a bit was that a bit of a challenge at the time to sort of take that road yeah 100 percent, it's a challenge but you know when you grow up in that environment um 
Well, on, on the one half, on the one hand, when you grow up in that environment, that's kind of what you expect. You expect not a lot of uh, kind of uh, sympathy for your kind of creative endeavours, um, which is a polite way of putting it. Um, but then on the other hand, as someone who, throughout my kind of journey growing up, always identified more as British than I did Chinese, therein lies a kind of uh, a conflict which is always present around my aspirations in a Western context and my parents' kind of ambitions as immigrants who have come into a place with, you know, high hopes and a wing and a prayer. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I guess I would say I was never really supported uh, on that creative journey. And quite frankly, I didn't really work it out until I was in like my mid-20s. So right. um, it was sadly for them to, you know, kind of help me with my tuition fees and so on and so forth before I realised this. But so that support aside, like it's, it's been an interesting journey. And I think it's a, it's a journey that a lot of um, first and second generation immigrants come across um, when I, you know, when I meet them in the creative industries because... It's very rare to find someone who is, you know, South Asian or East Asian in particular. I know this is true for West African as well, um, Latin American as well, where if your parents have gone through that much hardship to get you to a place where all they want to do is see you in a good job, when you decide that you don't want a good job, obviously that's uh, problematic. But I'm really glad I, I did that because that was part of the journey that I went through that made me the man I am today. So, so was there a moment like with a lot of creative people where it moved from being a hobby and an interest into something that can be your career and profession? And uh, in that regard, especially with that slightly uh, uh, interesting sort of cultural dimension to what you have as well, did you have a role model? Did you meet someone and thought, I could do that? Or was it that you had to completely find your own path? It's a really interesting question. I would actually say I've totally found my own path. Like, as with everything I've just said in context, I've always been kind of a one-man army and always been someone who hasn't seen someone like me doing the role. You know, I still don't see, for example, a Chinese-looking person who is a senior program manager in a large cultural institution like the Roundhouse, or indeed a promoter who is putting on hip hop or a DJ who's dancing, uh, DJing dancehall music. So everything I've ever done has always been, uh, I'm on my own or on my J's as I say. And so I think that's kind of taught me a certain amount of resilience and a sort of certain amount of kind of self starting. Um, there, there have been people uh, who have been people I've confided in and people who have inspired me, Natty being one of them. Um, Steve Bedlam, who's my boss at Glastonbury Festival, who's uh, one of the original kind of free party traveller community legends um, that, you know, were there at Castle Morton and, you know, seminal moments of kind of British recent cultural history. Um, they've had huge influence on me, not so much because I can see them in the job that I want to do because be quite frank even now I can tell you what the job I want to be doing in a year is I'm very much about occupying the space that feels right at the time and and whilst I would like to say I plan ahead and I have like this big kind of career goal in mind actually I think for me it's the ethos which is the the, the, the target that's the constantly moving what is target. that what is that ethos what is that it's, how would you describe that it's 
it's partly to do with uh, recognizing my the platforms available to me, whether I've built them or have access to them through privilege or, or dumb luck, and being able to try and uh, show people that I can, yeah, I, I, I can just build something myself, really. It's largely born out of a slightly trivial pursuit of just bringing friends together. That's literally it. Like the reason I started putting on events was because I was that guy who was inviting, you know, our mates, like 10 mates to the cinema or 20 mates to go to a rave or six mates to have a picnic. And I was always that guy because I like bringing people together. And because of the, the, the me sitting in the middle of this Venn diagram of all these social groups, bearing in mind that if you, if you think about me at school or university or in a workplace, being that kind of creative loner, if you like, um, I... I kind of move between places and people. And then when I realise that those people are good people and these people are good people, how do I get these people together? Um, the obvious thing to do is to uh, bring them into a music venue to listen to music. By extension, I think the obvious thing to do is to what happens if good people are strangers, but they don't know that they're good people yet. And what if those people are strangers and they don't know that they are an amazing talent yet? What happens if you bring them into a room? So it's like another layer of kind of like hollowing it out and realising that you can be in a room with anybody outside of a music entertainment context where people are like, there's a transaction going on to be like, okay, well, what, you know, what, what have you got for the world? Like what, not in a grandiose way, but like, I see, I see like a little spark in your eye or even if someone doesn't have that spark in the eye, I, my, the value, the ethos is that I know that everyone has it. So part of it is just about unpeeling the layers in a, in a kind of educational context, like in a classroom or in a youth club or college or whatever, and be like, okay, that's the good person in you right there. There's a very interesting aspect to that in the world of innovation. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, he talks about being a maven yeah, the concept that you're a, often in creativity, you need someone who's a connector, someone who basically connects up the dots uh, to create something. A lot of people say Steve Jobs, that was his, he, was, uh, he wasn't a technician. He was brilliant at seeing the big picture and bringing the right people into the room. Is that kind of what you do as a producer when you put together a big event at Glastonbury or something like that? Is it that kind of just bringing the right people into the room at the right time? Oh, I mean, that, that is the most... Um clear version of that because you know i've been programming my venue the Ramshack at glastonbury for the last five or six months which is basically a process of uh, imagination and alchemy and practical booking skills so what i mean by that is me sitting there being like okay so from thursday our venues open from eight till three in the morning on friday to sunday it's open from whatever nine till six in the morning what journey do I want people to go on? Now, in a normal festival venue, that might be like, okay, well, it doesn't really matter. Let's just put on a good act every hour and then people will come in and come out. And yeah, that's, that's true, but that's not my kind of principle at the Rum Shack. My principle at the Rum Shack is once they're in the Rum Shack, it's like the best house party you never knew existed. And once you're in, you never want to leave. So the point is, and this is born out of, you know, not going to like gr not growing up in festivals but growing up in raids where like you're there for the whole evening and you want to see the journey of the whole night like how is the the booker the promoter programmed 
one DJ after another DJ. Like, what is what is that narrative that they're telling? So if you kind of extend that into a festival field where you have all these competing interests, all these competing tents and headliners going on everywhere, it's like, what is the sound that I would like to hear in that space? And when the DJ or the live act who's on that I want to see is on, and I don't know who's on next, what's going to keep me in that space? So is that process a technical one is it just experience is it almost by um practical management like knowing how a show works and experience and spreadsheeting and programming in that sense but is it also going back to you how you started is it is it a flair is it a sense of feeling a sense of tone and style it's it's totally the latter it's it's something which i can almost touch and it's really mad because we released our lineup about a couple of weeks ago and then suddenly everyone can see it. But up until that point, for those five and a half months up until that point, it's, uh, it's me playing out the whole night in my head. And yeah, obviously there's a logistical, technical part of it. Like, uh, but actually, really and truly, I kind of see um, a programme, whether it's at a, a night at the top of a pub or at a festival stage, it's, it's a narrative which you take people on from start to finish and it is born out of a connection with the or an understanding of the energy that's in that space and that's really important to me you, did you so you start with who's going to be in the room or the marquee you start off with that yeah absolutely so you know if if we open at eight then i'm I'm thinking, okay, well, people are slowly coming in. It's not going to be a full room, so don't put our best acts on. Uh, What's the thing that's going to kind of uh, lower people's kind of invisible barriers down a little bit? Um, If I'm thinking about a one o'clock in the morning set, then I'm thinking about, okay, well, if if it's going off and, you know, what is the sound that's going to keep that energy there? And similarly, you know, in a workshop scenario, it's like, okay, well, how do we structure this workshop so that, you know, at the start, let's have a check-in, um, you know, get everyone feeling really comfortable. Maybe we'll have an icebreaker, all those kind of relatively kind of standard things. But then how does that journey take place? You know, where do you have your conversations? Where do you have your breaks? Where do you have your kind of didactic learning? Where do you have your um, uh, laugh? Where do you be silly? And all of that is really about kind of imagining the energy and the space based on your experience of that space. And I think for me personally, I'm not sure all educators or all promoters would say the same thing, but because I'm, I have both that kind of, I love organizing, but also I love creating. So People always say I kind of sit on either side, where it was often one or the other. There's an interesting aspect to uh, certain aspects of art, pure art, um, and that structure and chaos. You know, the Picasso worked inside a frame. You, mm-hmm. know? Yeah. you need a structure, don't you? Yeah. There always has to be a structure. But it sounds like what you have is that you almost have that uh, a bit of chaos in there as well. You have to have that chaos and energy. Absolutely. I mean, not too much chaos. You like a bit of structure. Oh, the older I get, the, the more structure <laughs> I need, to be honest. But um, I think I think that chaos breeds beauty. And I think that those moments, those unexpected moments, you know, if I knew exactly what was going to happen through a night or through a workshop, I'd, quite frankly, I'd be bored. You know, I'd be phoning it in. Actually, part of it is about leaving th- 
space for things to breathe, especially within events, you know, like you can over-program things. There is something interesting that I want to explore to kick on from that. It's a common thread that we've looked at in our uh, other podcasts and in the work we do as coaches. And that is the sense that creative careers seem to have an enormous amount of uncertainty. And it's almost impossible to take that out of a creative career, no matter whether it's in fashion, music, television, advertising, music. And, and that, that implies an element of stress and setbacks. And it also is combined with this often unhealthy aspect of the creative industries, which, um, not to put too fine a point on it, there's a lot of late nights, there's a lot of early mornings, mm-hmm. you're away from family, uh, often uh, bizarre food, bizarre drinks, and it's not always conducive to a more uh, 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 sound lifestyle, if you like. And I just wanted to touch on the sort of the aspect of setbacks. And, and I think everyone I know in the creative industry has had that moment, you know, the, the, uh, the feeling that this is all going horribly wrong. You must have programmed so many events and stages and events, which have been really tough nights and tough days, where it just hasn't gone well. And... I'm always interested in how you come back from that because when that happens, sometimes um, you feel like the, work, the the ground's opening up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially working in events as well, you know, events is almost like working backwards. It's working backwards from a perfect night and then thinking about all the things that could go wrong. Um, and so in some ways, I've started to realise that event production is kind of seeing everything that's going to go wrong. Like, and if you miss something that could go wrong that's the problem whereas it's i used to think when i was younger it's about putting on the perfect night but it's actually the opposite it's about putting on the night that doesn't fail um and i don't mean that in a negative way but i i think most of like event professionals will tell you that now because you know, if you think about health and safety that's an obvious example of you know, you're kind of working backwards from all the shit that could go wrong um uh i mean i've definitely got better at it in terms of how I manage and cope with the stress. And I've also definitely gotten better at how I uh, reconcile things which really hurt, like things that I've got wrong or things that we could have done better or things that we've missed and kind of desensitised to it a little. How do you go about doing that out of interest? Just doing it wrong. Like just being um, open to that chaos and recognizing that these things happen and it's not the end of the world i think the danger is especially when you work in event production is that because you spend so much time thinking about the things that could go wrong when that thing does go wrong you're either like oh no but i knew it was gonna go wrong or oh no i missed it and then that makes you feel so basically you just feel bad either way when actually the reality is that things will always go wrong and as soon as you are able to uh, acknowledge that, life is so much better and easier because ultimately you never make the same mistake twice. And if you do, you're a fool. Um, if you make a mistake once, fine. I, I, you know, I, I would challenge anyone not to get one thing wrong in one job. But, um, you know, as an example... Uh, in 2011, it was our first Glastonbury Festival that we were putting on a, uh, a stage. Uh, it's a long story. I'll try and give you the short of it. But basically, we were working with MSF, Medicine Sans Frontieres, Doctors Without Borders, amazing humanitarian aid organisation. And uh, we collaborated with them to put on a venue. And the venue was, in, uh, was built like a theatre set 
of uh, the crumbling wreckage of a hospital in Haiti. So post-cholera, well, post-earthquake and post-cholera epidemic. Um, and the, the, the stage was speaking about the work that they did in the field. And we had doctors and nurses and logisticians and installations kind of replicated what it was like. And we also had a music program in there, uh, which was where Ed Sheeran played his first Glastonbury uh, show. Nice. And then we also did a rave in, a, in another, in Bayside Circus, which is a big kind of like 1500 person, big top. Um, and I was quite naive at that point. It was my first Glastonbury that I programmed. And I basically programmed a, a 10 till six, back to back to back. And I didn't leave any changeovers. Now, if, if you're a stage manager and you saw that, you would cry. Um, at that point, I didn't really have anyone to be accountable to. So I did it, and then the whole thing started to unravel. And it wasn't technically my fault initially, because what happened was the people who were on before us um, went, didn't finish for another 45 minutes late. Now, it doesn't take a mathematician to work out that if you don't have any change over time to so get a band on and off, and you're already running 45 minutes late, then you're pretty screwed. And the end result was that I ended up getting in a... Uh, bust up with like a number one pop artist not Ed Sheeran um, and Ed and this other artist were actually number one either side of that weekend so we had the two biggest pop artists in the world playing on our stage and we had curated this thing with Ed Sheeran where he was going to be doing a collaboration with a bando man who's an amazing uh, hip-hop uh, freestyle comedian um, who's huge in Edinburgh Fridge and uh, SK Shlomo he was a massive beatboxer. He's performed with Bjork and um, all kinds of people. And we basically created this one-off, hour-long collaboration. But because everything was running late, um, my guy, this big pop star, was like, get them off now. And I was like, no, that's absolutely not happening. Um, you don't understand. This, is for this whole event's for charity. Like, we've, been, we've been rehearsing for this for, you know... Uh, couple of months and this is quite an important part of it and um with all you know with all respect like can give a shit who you are and basically he threw his toys out of his pram um there was loads of celebrities backstage it was getting a bit ugly um but i stuck to my guns and in the end we completed that kind of hour-long kind of special the guy went up did his thing um and it was ultimately fine. And that, but the, the, the thing that hurt the most out of the whole process was the fact that the band who was on at the end, who I thought we may be able to shave five minutes off a set here, two minutes off a set there, and basically be able to bring that set back in, um, who, they were like a 12-piece dubstep band from Asia, uh, from India with like sitar players and, you know, all kinds of... It was a big setup. Uh, and I had to turn around to them, my friend, and say, sorry, mate, I screwed it. Um, you can't play. And that was really, really soul-destroying. And it was soul-destroying on a number of levels because there were external factors that I hadn't thought about that were involved, like pop egos. There were, there were faults that were clearly my own, like not putting change over times. There was kind of laziness of being kind of complacent about that 45 minutes and not like whipping their ass for putting us in that situation. All of these kind of points of naivety um, and I remember coming away from it being distraught, like for doing that job, that was about the worst thing that could have happened, say for something, you know, catastrophic or terminal. And I remember having to look my team in the eye and actually them feeling more uh, sorry for me than I was sorry to them. 
And it made me realise that I, A, had to take ownership for all mistakes, no matter if they were mine or not. If they're happening under my watch, that's my mistake. Um, but also that I let my, you know, my, my kind of emotions get the better of me at the end of the night. Um, and, you know, I would literally have like recurring nightmares about this. No longer anymore, actually, but for a good like 10 how years, long, like, good 10 years of like recurring nightmares about it. Um, maybe like a couple of times a year. And to this day, you know, I'll, I'll tell it to my students, my event management students. I will, you know, relive it. But it's interesting because it's one of those ones that never has a resolution. Like no matter how many times I play it around in my head, it's that's like it's it's there etched into my into my kind of narrative. Out of interest, uh, you know, I, I made some uh, severe errors in my career, and one of the things I found that is you never make that same issue again mm. because you learn so much from it as an individual. So, as you know, me upsetting Madonna when, it was, when I was young. Um, and it was that aspect of not checking a contract. So I've always been rigorous about contracts ever since. Did you find that, in a way, made you... This is my positive psychology hat. It kind of makes you a better producer and event manager. The fact you've had those tough days and tough nights and tough... Absolutely. I think um, it's very hard to speak with any credibility to people about this is what happens when stuff goes wrong if you haven't yeah. got stuff wrong yeah. um, I'm very suspicious of anyone who um, hasn't got stuff wrong like, I'm not sure what you could learn by doing stuff right all the time really what that you're great and in your world I mean in your world a lot can go wrong there's technical things music things stage things yeah all kinds of stuff and I and, and what I start to realise is the more people you have on board the more eyes you have on and people that you trust around you um, you can almost eliminate that. Um, if you have enough people who you trust with en enough of the kind of diverse skill set, then you're fine. And that was the one thing that I realised was building a team is not always about having the people who you want around. It's often about the people who want you to succeed in a way. And whether that's for their own interest or whether that's out of altruistic interest, if they buy into what's happening, then you can pretty much move mountains. And and that's an interesting one to reflect on when you consider, you know, we're a very unusual business. Lyrics Organics is a very unusual business. We could have been a much bigger organisation, much higher grossing organisation, much um, more famous i guess um if it wasn't for the fact that rather than employ professionals in inverted commas we employ young people who are looking to get professional um and that's not always the most efficient way to run a business but it is the best way to build a community and to uh build relationships which are lifelong whereby you can trust them because in, in some cases, you know, you've given them their one and only shot in life um, and they recognise that in the other way. I feel that that is, in, again, in, in the world of positive psychology, we talk about having a purpose or having a meaning. Is that your deeper purpose then? You feel that that's come out a number of times about that community aspect, that giving something back almost or helping other people. 
Yeah. I don't see it as giving back. I think giving back is probably from a position of privilege that I haven't yet achieved. I'm sure I will do that at some point. But it's more about um, realising that no one ever made space for me. Like, I had to fight for the mic if I was on the stage. I had to fight on the, to get on the decks. I had to fight to be recognised as anyone who's just not a skin colour, do you know what I mean? Like, and that my skills represent themselves. And so I think, as a result, it's something which is kind of in, ingrained in me, I think. And I, yeah. Has that given you, because it's going to lead on to the next point about we often talk in coaching and in the creative world about flow state. Yeah. Um, is that something that you recognise in yourself in the work you do? Because the fascinating thing about flow state when you look at it is it's, it never ends. It's a constant, you're always wanting to do the next big thing, learn the next thing. And of course it brings this slightly uncomfortable aspect that we always want a challenge as well. In other words, do you get bored easily? Do you want to continually do stuff? Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, that's one of the, um, maybe one of our weaknesses as an organisation is that we are constantly moving because part of the unusual thing about Lewis Organics is that it is, it was never, so just to be clear, it was never designed to be a business. So really Lewis Organics was really just a brand face of what I wanted to do. And that at the time it want, it was wanting to raise money through and joining the dots between spoken word hip hop and folk music to look at the kind of the, the language, the kind of creative language of disenfranchised communities in history. Um, that was the thing that interested me. So as that evolved as a business, like it, it is something which um, is kind of a bit ill-fitted for its purpose. And so, sorry, remind me. We're talking about flow state, that's right. Yeah, so, the challenge, and, the fact yeah. that so many creative projects, by their very nature, you're exploring new things, you're having to pick up new skills, use new technology. Yeah. There's a strange uncertainty that, dare I say, it can be quite addictive, that sense that you're always on slightly on the edge, presumably when you're programming certain events. If you're doing things, if you're doing exactly the same thing as you did last year, it's not that much challenge. But when I speak with musicians and with advertising people, they seem to get most energised when it's slightly on the edge of their capabilities. Absolutely. And I, th I think it's really important. And I mean, it's unusual for an event producer in some ways because, at least for a promoter, um, ha having a format and then finding that format and banking that is what you should be doing. But to be honest, I don't see events in the same way as the live music industry sees events. In fact, I actually try and distance myself from the live music industry uh, in, in a sense. And I think it's about um, realising that the body of work that I'm creating through events, also through kind of educational programmes, is a legacy which will be looked back on. And do, is it something that I want people to look back on and be like, oh yeah, he put on, you know... Um, whatever top 40 brunch um, for 20 years and made loads of money because everyone got pissed eating brunch listening to steps well it's like no that makes no interest to me like, yeah I could probably be a very rich man and find pursuits and kind of satisfaction as a result of the money that I would get from that but that's not I see the creativity as the vessel by which we create change and I have I, I kind of feel, fulfill uh, kind of 
an ingrained satisfaction from. I, th- I think that flow state is about recognizing that Lyrics Organics and myself are uh, fluid um, and responsive. You know, historically, Lyrics Organics has always been ahead of the curve, and we wouldn't be ahead of the curve if we weren't in a flow state. Mm. And I think that's really important. And, you know, that comes with its uh, challenges because being ahead of the curve is kind of pre-commercial. So therefore, it's very difficult to make money when you're the first person doing the thing, right? Well, there's that old, that old joke in marketing is the pioneers all got arrows in the back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're the first person to go there... Exactly. You're either, you're fantastic or you're an idiot. Yeah. And, but, but I want that. And I want people to be like, that person who took an arrow for me was Lyrics Organics. Like, they were doing this thing five, ten years ago. The reason that Lyrics Organics started in the first place was because I recognised that at that place, 2009, that uh, mainstream music was going to reach a place where lyrical music, i.e. rap, and particularly rap in British dialect, would uh, be part of the mainstream. Because that people's uh, kind of popular culture would catch up with the linguistics of youth culture. That's been the case since throughout the whole 20th century and the 21st century. Why would anyone be so naive to think that rap in 2009 wouldn't have a place in mainstream culture? Well, that is what people were thinking. So that's why I put put on an event to make that statement. And what do you know? Stormzy is a cultural icon. Dave is, you know, a critical success. Um, Dizzy Rascal is, you know, part of our British heritage. Like, you know, this is now the norm. So... For me, being ahead of the curve is part of that flow state. So essentially, innovation is really an important part of what we do. But what about for you personally? Because we often deal in coaching with the individual, the human, the individual human. For you yourself, are you continually adapting and changing you as a person, Dan, reinventing Dan as a person as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there was a point where I was, you know, rewriting my bio, like, you know, every month, you know, I'd have a, you know, a new you know kind of way of branding a particular skill set that i have so yeah i'm i'm a restless individual definitely um and it's something which you know there's definitely challenges and weaknesses to that i'm not suggesting that's necessarily the, the way forward but i think that the way i've found kind of creative fulfillment and also um kind of societal contribution i guess is by finding what it is that i can contribute and i'm of the mindset that if someone's already doing it then why are you contributing the same thing to be honest like i i understand why there's a deliveroo and an uber eats and a just eat but that's for money there's not someone not, not one of them three are trying to like uh, make the experience of eating at home different. They're all giving you the same version of the same, different so, version of the so same thing. So for you, that that originality is quite important. You, you need to, you need you need that originality in the work you do. Absolutely, uh, you know, originality is everything. But you know, I come from hip hop culture, so originality is is in 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 our bloods. Like it can be debatable. A great artist steal and all that. 
Well, absolutely. But this is this is the beauty of uh, of hip hop is that it's based on remix culture and samples, yeah. right? So it is very much a copycat culture. But how you find originality within that is is the principle. And so, again, if if you bring it back to lyricism, you can say a sentence a million different ways, but to find someone who says it in a certain type of way that kind of catches the zeitgeist or catches the tone or whatever it might be, like which Stormzy does very well, then it's it kind of switches the paradigm off that area. And my, you know, going back to what I said right at the start as to why I started events in the first place, it was to change what a gig was. Like, I didn't want to go to a gig, just sit there and watch an artist and clap at the end of it. That wasn't that interesting to me because I was going to all of those gigs every night of the week. What I wanted to do was for people to come away from it, not only feeling enriched and learning something, but particularly feeling like they've helped someone. And and that was by doing a charity gig. Now, that's not exactly, you know, uh, innovation as such, but combining the the quality of the experience and having a quality of experience which I would see as the same as walking into an art gallery and being presented with an artist's work is the same way that I think about curating and presenting there shows. Is, there is a great line by, I think it's Professor Zeldin at Oxford, and he says, the conversation I want is where both parties leave it being a different person. Mm. That's the whole point of art, really, isn't it? Is If it doesn't change you or help you raise another question, what's the point of seeing... Another thing that's exactly the same as the other thing. Yeah, absolutely. But that's the challenge. Like once you start putting, you know, once you've put on hundreds or thousands of shows, um, it's very difficult to identify what it is that, not so much you got out of it, but like, what was the thing that may have been different? A new conversation. Yeah, exactly. And what's interesting, kind of going back to the head of the curve idea, was, you know, Charity gigs or kind of call to actions in the context of the music industry or whatever are now ten a penny, especially since Black Lives Matter and the pandemic. Like people now recognise, and obviously Band Aid being the forefather of that all, but like people recognise, and even Woodstock, that people coming together has a power. And so again, if you make space for people to come together, then you can create change. And whether that change is something individual or whether it's something that's far bigger than that, it's really about um, kind of starting this chain reaction of change. So I, I have this feeling inside of me, I don't know how to deal with it. I'm going to externalise it and make it into an event or a painting or a poem or whatever. Um, what are you going to do with that information? That's the question that I want to ask people. It's really interesting. And, and the other aspect that I want to ask you today because you've been your work at the roundhouse especially you're more of a uh as you say it's that arts education it's being a coach and a mentor as well an inspiration to a lot of young people so as part of the challenge if you like is um i want to explore what you see that the behavior that you see that makes people successful who are creative but i want to start with the flip side of that do you see a certain kind of behaviour with creative people that actually sets them back, that stops them doing what they want to do? Are there common things, common mistakes that you see creative people make, be it in your work with stages, productions, etc.? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first mistake is people being too precious about their, their art or their creativity. It's not ready yet. That whole thing of like, it's not ready yet. 
And that is a problem born out of creativity that will exist forever. Part of creativity is trying to find perfection. Um, and perfection doesn't exist, potentially. That's for another podcast. But basically, uh, it's it's interesting because people are constantly trying to chase this. I was, I was interviewing, at the Roundhouse, I was interviewing Amira Moore, who's Rudimentals, oh, nice. one of Rudimental, basically. And he was talking about this. And he was talking about... He was talking about when they first played Glastonbury in 2014, right? Rudimental, brand new band, first album, walked straight out onto the Pyramid stage, 2014, boom, done. And he was like, I thought since I was 14 that that was my dream. And then I got to the Pyramid stage and it looked smaller than I thought it was, and which it wasn't. Um, and then I got on stage and it happened and I thought that was going to be, you know, that was my peak career. As soon as you got a stage, you realise that the goalpost had just moved. And this constantly moving target is the bane of creativity. But you wouldn't have creativity if you didn't have a constantly moving target. So it's... Is that that challenge then? Is that that going back to that flow state? It's always going to be something else to do. Yeah, because I think if you don't... If you aren't able to enter that flow state, mm. then it's, it's quite clunky kind of picking up and dropping stuff and analysing it and, like, breaking it down. And then, you know, that that kind of quite... I mean, it's a fine line between, you know, project-based work and kind of a flow state in a sense of, like, you know, where, where does where does it start and end? Um, and is one project really kind of just an evolution of another project? And, I mean, so the common thing I find is that creators... Uh, aren't ready to put the stuff out. They are ready or not ready? I'm not ready to put that stuff out. Uh, and that goes for just people working in the creative industry. So, you know, I'm, uh, I don't know, I'm, uh, let's say, a, someone's looking for a job as a, a festival sound engineer, for example. Uh, and they're not ready. They don't know all the tricks yet. And, and they're not, you know, well, so actually, sound engineers are probably not the best example. Sound engineers are one of the best at kind of just getting their hands dirty. And, but, in most creative industry pursuits, it is a lot of people hold them back because they don't feel that they're ready yet. There is, there is an interesting aspect to that. It, there's nothing like a deadline. Yeah. Deadlines motivate us, don't they? Absolutely. For me, like I'm, I'm a massive deadline person, um, as in I will take it right to the deadline. Um, and I think, yeah, it focuses minds. Yeah. But I think it's also about, ha you know being accountable to someone this is the problem like you know a lot of creative people don't have people they're accountable to necessarily um whether that's a friend or whether that's uh that's a really critical that is a fantastic point because that's why often artists need a manager or a producer or an a&r exec or a coach or a mentor yeah. sometimes we're not very good at self self-managing giving ourselves a deadline to do stuff to drop stuff I mean, it's entirely why they exist. You know, there wouldn't be an industry that didn't exist if an artist didn't need a manager or like, a, uh, you know, otherwise they'd be doing it all themselves. And then where would the creativity be? Well, I'm sure you've met a few stage managers who give you a bit of a scare. Yeah. But there's a, reason why, there's a reason why they're scary. Because things have to change. Things have to move. Get off my effing stage, basically. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think it's interesting because... Uh, 
Well, I mean, in, in that case, you know, the, the, a stage manager has a very different kind of set of skills in so much as... What are their skills to be scary? Uh, to be really lovely when they need to be and really hard when they they need you to do something. Um, and, you know, my, my best stage managers are just some of the loveliest people around. But if you F with them, like, you don't want to, basically. And it's not even like on, on, on a security bouncer tip. It's just like, you know that if they're telling you that you need to get off the stage... It's because they've looked after you, like they've mothered you for the last two hours. And now they're just asking you for one thing, which is to be respectful. I actually hired, I hired an excellent stage manager for a big TV event I, did, I produced. And uh, pre-production, she was the loveliest, most gentle person I've ever met. Bearing in mind, I gave her the contract. When I walked on the stage and was near some very expensive synthesizers on the night, the language would have turned a sailor's club blue, uh, as in do not, if you touch that, Andrew, you know, it was that kind of thing. And, it, and then my boss said, that's what they're paid to do. Yeah. It's that mixture of being kind at one minute, but then being incredibly strict the next. As coaches and mentors, we see a lot of people reporting a sense of being overstressed, anxious, especially in these creative industries. I just wonder, what practices do you recommend in terms of self-managing to creative people? When they say, and you must get this a lot, I'm stressed, I'm anxious, I'm not feeling comfortable. Uh, one of the things that we talk about is being comfortable with being uncomfortable, which is difficult. But what do you say? Because you've done, obviously, you work with lots of young creative people. What do you say when people say that to you, that they're anxious and stressed and that they can't cope? Are there any things that you often recommend I mean, when I'm working at the Roundhouse, um, we're very lucky to have, you know, a really great infrastructure and kind of, you know, mental health first aiders and like support hubs and like signposting. And so in, when I'm working within an organisation like that, I feel very lucky because that can kind of be, you know, shown shown a certain direction. But for me, like it's write it down, I find like sometimes I, you know, I even did it last week. I was having quite a stressful week and I, I was like, all of the stuff that's gone wrong this week and I'm just constantly going round and round and round in my head. And I was like, is this actually real? Or am I just, you know, lav you know, just building myself up into a lever? Um, and so I just wrote it down. And then once you'll be amazed at how cathartic it is just to read it and see it and then realise that there's bigger stuff going on in the world. This is the, this is the biggest thing, right? Which is, there is bigger stuff going on in the world. Yeah. And I think once you have a bit of context, especially when it comes to creativity and art, then you can kind of really unlock, you know, your relationship with your creativity, but also your relationship or, or your role in, in terms of change, which is once you recognise that your art in its art, artistic form is just painting a canvas, mm. when you actually start to realise what it is, what you're putting into it, what people are getting out of it, then it really takes start to take on meaning, right? And so for me, you know, it's about the creative process is about getting it out. It's just, you know, because creativity is inherently in your head uh, or in your body. And so therefore by, you know, uh, the, the, the catharsis or the exorcism of that energy is really important because... Um, whether it's negative or whether it's positive, you're, you're able to kind of analyse it. And I think the, the creative brain works in such a way that we need to see it. So I would say writing it down. But also, you know, on a practical level, 
just going for walks. Like, honestly, walks are the, just so healing. And especially, you know, if you're even just around a few trees um, going for a walk, it makes such a huge difference. This is for me personally, you know, everyone has their own thing. Um, whether it's physical exercise or meditation or swimming or whatever it might be, um, find 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 those things is is my best advice. I think one of the interesting things is when I was studying marketing as a younger guy, one of the great phrases in marketing is "good things happen when we narrow the focus." The strange thing is, is when you get into things like coaching and mindfulness, it's about focus. Mm. It's about focusing on what's truly important. And taking that time and space to stop. And I think that's where the walking and the swimming comes in because it actually stops you. You can't redo you can't exactly. you can't spend the life your life worrying if you're on a walk or you're watching or you're swimming. But it's funny, uh, I find it fascinating is that the more I learn about it, it is that sense of focus. Yeah. That the sense of concentration rather than distraction, action rather than procrastination actually makes us happier and a lot of research into this about what makes us happy it tends to be when we have little steps of progress not endlessly hours worrying about things but taking small steps um and i think some of those small steps can be very almost uh, simplistic such as you know sending an email to someone who needs it um making sure you've booked a meeting it's things like that which actually make us feel good we don't always have to do these enormous huge things if you study well, when I've studied positive psychology, it is actually small steps, which in a way is quite. It can get quite uh, quite spiritual in that sense. Is that it's simple little things, not the big. If you do the simple little things, the bigger things will tend to look after themselves. Yeah, and that's another thing. You know, I think I think when you're relatively fresh in the game, you you constantly want to hit the big big milestones but the reality is it's like you say it's like the email that you send it's like the the staying after work and having a drink by the water cooler with with someone who you could have spent half an hour reading an email and then they misinterpreted the email but you just look in their eyes for 30 seconds and you've got the whole thing solved like i think i think human contact is a really powerful tool yeah. in the in in the kind of creative industries and just generally in kind of organizational cultures like and i think the pandemic is an interesting one because it's made us reevaluate our relationship with each other and and our kind of presence with each other um and so that's one of the reasons you found so many creatives struggling in lockdown is because you know if you're a musician you crave standing up on the stage and people watching you which is such a peculiar mindset i think that relationship point again going back to the sort of positive psychology stuff relationships talking to people listening to people helping others rather than focusing continually on ourselves again it's a relatively simple thing stop continually talking to yourself inside your head and instead go out with someone and talk about what it was like to be at Glastonbury you know uh, talk about this stuff and it makes us all feel instinctively better on that sense of better, mm. I've got our final thing. Okay. We always do do three things at the end of six before breakfast. Yeah. Um, essentially, with your rich and varied career, I'm going to ask you to look back at your younger Dan, the younger, much more good-looking, sophisticated, stylish Dan. Not that much good-looking. Not that much good-looking. Much more good-looking. Your younger version <laughs> of yourself. 
Looking back to your younger version of yourself when you started, what three things would you advise that younger Dan now? Uh, start now. Like I waited for ages before I started. And I know that I, I know my partner has this kind of inbuilt, like I've got 10 years to catch up on. I should have started this at 17. So just start, just pick up that pen or pick up that brush or write your CV or whatever it is. If you uh, think you're not ready for it, that's probably when you're ready for it, at least to start that journey. Because reality is you're going to probably get rejected that first couple of times or the first poem that you write is going to be rubbish or the first gig that you performed is pretty rubbish. Um, but the next one's not going to be. You need to get to that second one as soon as possible. Um, the other thing would be to be accountable. Find someone who is who will make you accountable. Normally it's a friend, but even if it's a mentor, a tutor, whatever it might be, um, find someone to keep you in check. And if you if you do spend your pocket money or your pennies uh, investing on anything, invest in someone to keep you on track. And then the third thing I would say is to just follow your intuition. Like I would, I don't regret any, mis- any decision I've made in my life um, in terms of my career. Um, and... I'd say about 75% of them, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I didn't know why I was making that decision. I knew what I wanted to happen, um, but I didn't know how it was going to pan out. Um, and it, it was unlikely to be part of a bigger scenario. So following your intuition, because it's never wrong. Amir from Rudimental said a really interesting thing last week, which was your intuition is always right. It's your ego that's wrong. And the moment you spend those extra few seconds thinking about whether that first decision you made was the right one, that's your ego talking about whether, ah, are people going to like it or uh, should I be releasing it right now or whatever, whatever that might be, actually you were right first time. Wow. What a brilliant thing to end on, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us here at the fabulous RSA house. Best of luck with all the work. You're doing Glastonbury again this year? Doing Glastonbury, yeah. Best of luck with that. And uh, thank you very much for being a guest for us tonight, Dan. Thank you. Have a good evening. It's been a pleasure. Good night. Cheers. Thank you for listening and hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you make a living by being creative and talented or manage and coach those who do, then join our community of interest to see and hear more from like-minded people and meet some friends you might not yet know. The ICD supports the development of more caring, relevant and effective coaching and mentoring for everyone who works in the creative industries. To stay part of the conversation, you can visit us online at our LinkedIn group and Facebook page or listen to more episodes from the Six Before Breakfast podcast.